0: Good day to you listeners, which there seems to be an ever-increasing amount of subscribers, of people tuning in week to week, so obviously some people out there are getting some value from this. So once again, thank you for the subscriptions, thank you for the feedback, and it's all appreciated by me. This week is part two of the General Semantics uh, series. This one's on the basis of the way we think, the Aristotelian laws of thought. Uh, I just wanted to quickly mention that finally, oh, finally, the harder breathing ebook will be out next week. I've got the diagrams done. So what's going to happen is it's going to go up on YouTube and there's going to be a link to where you can find the ebook for free, which I hope you enjoy. It was a fun little project and it is the precursor to a longer form book that I'm gonna release at the end of the year. Uh, That won't be free. I'm gonna plunk that on Amazon, I hope. So be sure to grab this one while you can. This podcast is actually done as a YouTube video. So if you have YouTube, head on over to the Way of Fools channel and I'll provide the link in description. And check out the visual form, which I put quite a bit of effort into. Uh, Next week, we're going to discuss the extraterrestrial origins of RNA viruses. So look out for that one.
1: You know, Nietzsche also in Thus Spake Zarathustra. When Zarathustra comes down the mountain, he sees a bunch of people gathered around a famous individual. I think maybe a scholar, but it doesn't really matter. And when Zarathustra goes and looks at the person, all he sees is a little tiny midget with a gigantic ear. And so he has a pretty impressive ear, but he's only this big. And that was Nietzsche's imagistic commentary on the danger of hyper-specialization. Because he thought about it as a kind of deformity. And so for Nietzsche, like, he said, all truths are bloody truths to me. And what he meant by that was that if an idea didn't incarnate itself in you and transform your perceptions and your actions, then you were merely possessed by the idea. You were merely a spokesperson for the idea. Abstracted representations that can be tossed about as if they're commodities. And so Nietzsche's criticism of scholars, and he did this a lot, was that... They were bloodless. They were full of performative contradictions. That's another way of thinking about it. They'd say one thing and do another because their intellect was completely dissociated from their, from their actions. It's not a good idea to have ideas possess you. He did address the issue of the relationship between intellectual knowledge and, and action because for Nietzsche, those things are not to be separated.
0: Friedrich Nietzsche, that unbelievable genius, once spoke on facts. There are no facts, simply interpretations. All sense perceptions are permeated with value judgments. This is something that runs in stark contrast with our acceptance of facts as something beyond ourselves. Uncertainty defines our experience in this world.
1: I can live with doubt and uncertainty and not knowing. I have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of certainty about different things, but I'm not absolutely sure of anything. And there many things I don't know anything about, such as w- whether it means anything to ask.
0: A previous guest of the show, Rolf Sattler, wrote, For many people, objectivity means reality or truth. But since we don't know the truth, that which is, this concept of objectivity is not useful in science. Instead, it seems more appropriate to understand objectivity as inter-subjectivity. Thus, what is widely shared and accepted between subjects is considered objective. This is not an extreme postmodernist environmentalist argument as some would assume, far from it. This is something deeper, more primordial. Anyone who has traveled the world would have to agree that there are pronounced differences between peoples and the way they see things. One could argue this is merely genes, and environment interacting over time, but that in itself is also a reduction. Realities appear to be shaped between peoples over time as well. In part one, we looked at general semantics, and in particular the verb to be and the nature of human abstraction. The idea that any abstraction is false by the necessary omission of multitudes of its parts In this part, we will examine the laws that underpin our ability to abstract, to reason, and to speak. Goethe, the German philosopher and scientist, was once quoted as saying, He, a scientist, will select from the data a few favorites that flatter him. He will manage to arrange the rest so that they will not appear to contradict him. And lastly, he will complicate, obscure, and eliminate the hostile data.
1: It seems we have a problem. In 2005, John Ioannidis rocked the academic world with his paper that said this. There is increasing concern that in modern research, False findings may be the majority, or even the vast majority, of published research claims. According to a survey of more than 1500 scientific researchers in 2016, more than 70% of them have tried and failed to reproduce another scientist's experiments. And more than half failed to reproduce their own experiments.
0: For sure, it is not just scientists. To me, this is an ubiquitous feature of the modern world. What makes it annoying is that many facts are paraded as truly objective, that they and they alone, through all the generations, possess finally the sole objective truth based in science. And yet through all of this, we've completely forgotten any focus on the quality of the body and mind, the organ that does the abstracting. Attempting to separate one's abstracting from the vital and governing elements of the body. Even ignoring the sensations of the body as abstractions themselves, we seem to inhabit a world of disjointed ideas and speculations and ideologies. But
1: I want to say
0: there's something else going on in the Cartesian refusal to give up on dualism, and it has to do with our conception of ourselves in this modern world. We want to understand ourselves in terms of a self. We want to understand ourselves in terms of the capacity for will and rational action. Grasp the certainty of our own emotions and sensations as we look inside ourselves. They seem essentially private. They seem unique to the person having those sensations. I think everybody in this room can recognize that there's been a substantial commitment to the Cartesian view culturally, historically, socially, politically for us. We seem to pay very little heed to the ultimate limitations of our abstractions, instead mistaking our symbol use for objective reality and seeking to obfuscate the reality of our situation. To recall from our last presentation, there are two ways to slide easily through life, to believe everything or to doubt everything. Both ways save us from thinking. Korzybski explicitly referred to his system of general semantics as non-Aristotelian or not of Aristotle. So what did he mean by this? To go down further, Korzybski tells us that our manner of deduction stems from Aristotle. So the question is, how did Aristotle impact the way we view the world? How did Aristotle view the world himself, and what laws do we derive from this? Aristotle himself tended to view man as a political animal, gifted with reason, composed of a body and a soul. Man was of the polis, that is to say man becomes man among others living in a society governed by laws and customs. Man develops his potential and realizes its natural end in a social context. In his conception, man was composed of body and a soul. He conceived the soul as a kind of motor which deliberates In this context, the word motor, meaning a motive force governing the body. As the motor which deliberates, the soul was a force in a way that governed the body. From this, man was then split into two parts. On the one hand, a material body which, as we all know from our language and culture, is identified with animality and was therefore considered as inferior. And on the other side, we possess a soul or the so-called higher side of man. Indeed, this dualism will seem familiar to all of us. In Aristotle's conception, man is identified with the supposed qualities of animalism and is split into two parts. On the one side, a material body identified to animality considered as inferior and base, and on the other side, a soul A domain of reason and spirituality considered as superior. And arguably, at least to call and I tend to agree, this has structured our whole vision of ourselves, split into a dualism. Now, I do believe there is a kind of practicality in all of this, which I don't discount. The problem is, of course, that no one really sees it for what it is, and it nevertheless informs the totality of vision Without possibility for question. Many insane and absurd views of ourselves have arisen from this. Whether Aristotle intended that or not is irrelevant to this picture. I think that's a big deal. It,
1: it can get super weird when, okay, how about
0: Rachel Dolazel? Mm-hmm. She identifies as being black. Great. Yeah. Let's she's do this. transracial. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? I think she's correct. ha <laughs> ha! Not now hang on, let me let me uh let me tell you what correct means there. Aristotle himself said, quote, We will therefore restrict ourselves to the living creature in the first place, consists of soul and body, and of these two, the one is by nature the ruler and the other the subject. To further illustrate the split, and this at once indicated by the soul, in which one part naturally rules and the other is subject and the virtue of the ruler we maintain to be different to that of the subject, the one being the virtue of the rational, and the other of the irrational part. Now, it is obvious that the same principle applies generally, and therefore almost all things rule and are ruled according to nature. In many ways, I think it is obvious from the various forms of cretinous and schizoid behavior we observe around us right now that... Aristotle's influence here has led to a kind of split in mankind, for better or worse, that I will call the material and the spiritual. Many embrace this split. I myself think it is an enormous problem. This dualism shows up constantly in all of our thinking, even in the ideologies man has constructed to try and free himself of this very same dualism and hilariously if anything, the split is more pronounced in those views of the world, including postmodernist views. In one way of thinking, then, our civilization has rested on a conflict, and as Korzybski would say, it operates according to a map of the organism that is not at all similar to it. All my work here is really geared at dismantling substandard internal maps. For humans, really, in the end, there is the body and its drives, and the organic. And, of course, consciousness. Let's spend a moment to take a look at these laws in more detail, so it becomes obvious to you how influential the Aristotelian laws of thought really are. The laws of thought are as follows. Number 1. Whatever is, is. This is what Aristotle loosely refers to as the Law of Identity. Number two, the notion that nothing can be and not be. This is known as the Law of Contradiction. Number three, the final law is one that is outlined by Korzybski himself in great detail in Science and Sanity, and that is the Law of the Excluded Third which is to say that everything must either be or not be. I want to spend a little bit of time here digging down a little deeper into the essential meaning of each law, the law of identity. As discussed in the last presentation, this law reasons that A is A. This is simply a way of saying that whatever is true is true, and the truth is the truth, and whatever is false is therefore also false. And, by extension, using the verb to be and the law of identity leads us to qualitative conclusions about reality that are in a dualistic fashion. Like, whatever is good is good, and therefore whatever is bad must be bad. The law of contradiction. This is the logical conclusion that nothing can be something, and at the same time, not be something. This can be represented by A is not a non A. So, what does this mean in simple terms? It means that something cannot be true and false at the same time. Whatever is true is not false, and whatever is false is therefore not true. As a further example, something common in our own thinking, and whatever is bad is not good and whatever is good is not bad. Finally, we have the law of the excluded third. This is a proposition that is either true or false, hence everything is either good or bad. There is no way between A and non-A. Whatever there is must either be or not be. This kind of extrapolation is replete today as insanity rips our world apart. We see that many of the people that point to themselves as deconstructionists, for example, are in fact the biggest promoters of this so called traditional Aristotelian thinking. There is just absolutely no doubt whatsoever in their minds. Aristotle described these premises as ruling the laws of thought, and they have governed everyone's thinking, for better or worse, ever since. And of course, there was little reason to question it, with the noticeable exception of the Buddha. And really, until the Newtonian and quantum revolutions, there was no real reason to question these laws. Scholars tend to refer to these laws loosely as the logic of opposition. And all European languages, at least the ones that I'm familiar with, are underpinned by these logical structures. Thus, we derive ways of thought and downriver behaviors in the West from antiquity to our time based on these laws, or that's the argument anyway. For sure, I think we can say that a lot of pathological behavior occurs because of this manner of thinking, a lot of unnecessary conflict particularly when an entire civilization rests upon it, and particularly when that civilization is now extremely complex with complex scientific problems and scenarios. It is my contention that the shortcomings of these processes become abundantly clear towards the dissolution of a civilization, as destructive forces as opposed to constructive forces, make use of these laws of thought. In my understanding of history, there always seems to be at least one party that uses these laws very effectively as a force of dissolution. Some of the mechanisms of thought this creates should be coming obvious to us at this point, but let's expound on a couple of the more significant ones. The first is either-or thinking. Recalling the law of the third expounded by Korzybski, which we see as the reasoning for either or, I want to take a look quickly at some of the mechanisms that these laws of thought create. The first is either or thinking. remembering the law of the third expounded by Kolzybski, in which we see the reasoning of either or, you could say that this underlies all our polemics to an increasingly extreme level these days, particularly with news media being what they are and deliberately trying to stoke division. I will repeat it. If you are anti-mandate, you are absolutely anti vax I don't care what your personal vaccination status is. If you support, champion, give a green light, give comfort to, support anybody who argues against the vaccine, you are an anti-vaxxer, absolutely. Your personal vaccination status is utterly irrelevant. If you campaign against the mandate, if you campaign against people being vaccinated in vulnerable settings, teachers in classrooms. I will be really clear, at that point in time, people were actually supporting the idea of a teacher being unvaccinated in a remote community classroom. A truer example of low IQ psychosis and fear I never did see. This offers a perfect example of the obtuse limitation of the either or frame. And unfortunately for the population of the Northern Territory, Bad thinking habits have rendered this gentleman as perhaps better suited to scrawling random prophecies in his own feces on the wall of a padded cell. In these debates or arguments, we assume each protagonist is certain to be right, and the other one is therefore certain to be wrong and the debater therefore attempts to convince his opponent. Naturally, humans being what they are, such arguments, very frustratingly for people like myself, who tend to suffer the consequences of them, particularly in the last two years, then end up generally not based on the observation of facts. Rather, the human being prefers to position themselves purely on the basis of contradictory opinions, without relations to them. This is my hill to die on, either or. No argument can be made on the matter, even if the view does not comport with the best models available. Of course, reality is infinitely more complex than some blabbering monkey's desire to win an argument or to make more money. We need only look at social media platforms like the cosmic nihilism generator Twitter, with some notable exceptions, it consists almost entirely of meaningless discussions and one-upsmanship and hilariously i guess because of the either or duality that underpin all these conversations they are destined never to be solved so you have to ask yourself why would you bother engaging in the discussion to start with particularly if you have better things to do another dualism that has affected mankind for some time is that of good versus evil the duality of good versus evil plays a part in all of this from this dualism all sorts of absurd and erroneous viewpoints can emerge.
1: Just accept it, man. As disappointing as that may sound, Jesus is Satan, and that Jesus is evil, man. Believe me, world, he, he's he's evil. You don't have you don't have wisdom. You've been searching for wisdom as long as I have.
0: Particularly when something is called evil that doesn't really have any evil characteristics. Or something is seen as good that really has more features of evil. In modernity, this inversion is actually quite common, and I think anyone that's seen news media recently will see this. To me, in my understanding of history, this is the most dangerous downstream effect of dualism because moral indignation tends to turn into large-scale conflict fairly easily. The third downstream effect of these laws of thought that I think is interesting is the static vision of an impermanent universe. As someone who basically ascribes to the views of the Buddha, this insight of Korzybski's I consider to be one of the most important. You may recall the law of identity. That is, whatever is true is true and whatever is false is false. A is A. Let's consider this in more detail for a second. From the epistemological starting point of self-conception, we inherently acknowledge that we are static and rigid beings. Our judgments of ourselves and our environments are absolute truths. We are therefore also absolutely true. After all, there is a static soul driving everything. Now, this is not a comment on the soul per se, more so that this confines our abilities to acknowledge the dynamic and changing nature of the universe and ourselves. We think due to odd quirks of culture and cognition that our souls are permanent and unchanging. This precludes us from basically seeing things as they are. The universe is dynamic, changing, extraordinarily complex to the degree that one can only acknowledge the absolute limits of their simian nervous system. If one does this, there is a richness and depth to experience that most of us are incapable of getting to because we're lost in a dogma daze, as Christopher Hyatt once said. Even a basic inside meditation would reveal to us that nature is in a constant state of flux, and in many ways, there is no personable, stable observer. My final comment is on the danger of science when it's combined with Aristotelian logic. Through the several mechanisms of dualism that we have just discussed in detail, And as our pursuit of the manipulation of matter becomes more profound and powerful, we can see now that the dangers of not understanding how we abstract and the limitations of our primitive language systems can lead to great problems. Half of the population gets destroyed right away.
1: 12 minutes
0: had already passed. If
1: Petrov had warned the high
0: command at this stage, they would have had only minutes left to brief General Secretary Yuri Andropov to decide whether to launch a counterstrike. I had to make a decision. I decided this
1: was a false alarm. I decided, in the end, that it would be less damaging to qualify the rockets we detected as false alarms. Okay. After 10 or 11 minutes passed, the relief came. The over-the-horizon radio location radar stations did not find anything and the decision I had made was confirmed. The start was false.
0: The false detection had been created by a rare alignment of sunlight that reflected via the Earth into the satellite's lenses. We see this dualism today in obvious ways. At the time of recording, there was a certain American quarterback playing American football, I think, explaining why he didn't want a certain medical intervention. The true and correct reaction would be to look at this individual's case on its own merits. The multitude and complexity involved the risk to him, the risk to his career and how long he had to live and all these other factors that you would normally take into consideration. Yet, those in favor of this objectively good intervention whom just happen to be the sole purveyors of objective truth and goodness, couldn't accept this. And the reason they couldn't accept it is because the opposite team are full of falsehoods, evil. The dualism of the officially sanctioned thought, the science, TM, is therefore true. The priesthood of objective facts, therefore, bestow the official truths upon the population. All other gray, All other complexity or subtlety is discounted, therefore, as falsehood or magical thought or pseudoscience. A vaccine is the world's best hope of overcoming the COVID-19 pandemic. Is it? There we go with the absolute statement with the isness of identity. It is absolute essence of truth. The fact remains that we're not really gonna know if it was the best way to handle the situation until after the situation is done and we've had the chance to collect data. It could be the absolute worst way to handle the situation. This is why these principles are so important because you could be creating with your absolute certainty an absolutely catastrophic situation. A little self-doubt comes in handy sometimes. Either or dogmatism cannot possibly handle the inherent uncertainty and complexity of the scientific process. To be honest, I would expect better of our scientists, and I would expect that they would have figured this out by now, but they have not done so. As an important thinker once said, above all, the beast cannot handle uncertainty. That is to say that any explanation is better than none when it comes to the human being, no matter how ridiculous it is. But with all the technology and other things that we have nowadays, this is also an extremely dangerous way to exist in the world. Finally, in this worldview, many possibly useful or credible things are tossed out completely, and many valuable solutions will never be found as a result. And in many ways, this is merely a feature of our language and our way of abstracting and in this way, simply does not allow for anything more subtle. In the last two and a half thousand years, we've gone through about three epochs in our understanding of the universe. The first is the Greek or metaphysical pre-scientific method, that is Pythagoras, Euclid, Aristotle, those philosophers of antiquity. We could briefly outline their view as the observer does not really count at all Only the observed object is really important in observing the truth. And finally we have the relativistic or quantum period defined by people like Niels Bohr or Einstein. That is, all man can know is a phenomenon due to both the observer and what he observes. This period of thought considered that every observation is pertaining to the observer and varies according to what is observed. The nervous system cannot be separated from what is. Now, many of you might be thinking this sounds suspiciously like a modern progressive asserting that there is no truth at all. To clarify, I have several problems with the extrapolations many general semanticists draw from this outlook. Firstly, many people have taken this as an excuse to completely dismantle the idea of truth, Many of Korzybski's students were progressives, something that I am not. This is a perspective that I disagree with. In my opinion, General semantics is not the distinction that there is no truth. It's simply that our grasp of it is extremely limited. One has to acknowledge that certain ways of behaving or being lead to certain outcomes. I tend to view general semantics as a tool, foremostly, a rigorous tool for the thinking of the individual, for dismantling civilizationally imposed self restrictions, and basically for fearless insight into the world and the individual's place in it. It is a tool for ruthlessly dismantling, excuse-making, and fanciful delusions about the way we are as individuals and groups. And as far as I can see, this leads to anything but a progressive outlook, which appears to be, to be merely another deracinated, dualistic view of denying truth through ideology, distancing us from our biology. All which we can come to know about our very existence, our experience of the world, depends on biological quality, the biological quality of the organism, shaping our capacities and our limits, something we can change here and now with certain apparent choices. We are not able to know everything. This would be no fun for us anyway, uh, even to understand a small degree of what we call reality as most levels are completely and utterly unknowable. And I would hope through your understanding of the laws of thought and how we derive what we call reality that people start focusing on the quality of their abstractions, the quality of their organism and ultimately the limitations of our judgments. Please subscribe for more content and videos like this. We discuss philosophy, practical spirituality, and ecology, and much more. And your engagement is always appreciated.